Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Hi everyone, today we are joined by Peter Stiffel, who is a PhD candidate from the University of Kent and he is an up-and-coming expert in the iconography of Mary I, so you're really in for a treat today guys. How are you doing Peter? Thank you very much for coming on. I'm very well, thank you Jackson. Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, I, uh, those who don't know, I met Peter when I was in first year at uni uh, and he was passing on the, the History Society. So we've come a long way from there. But it's, it's very oh, yeah, cool. No, and it, yeah. it just grew and grew and grew. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's very cool <laughs> to sit down with you as well and talk about your PhD research from having watched you finish your, your bachelor's as well. So it's, it's a really great moment. And hopefully a load of people from Chichester are listening as well. Thank you. You know, we've got to boost Chichester. It's yeah, great, <laughs> great university. Great university. Looking. Definitely go to it. They should and promote Kate. this podcast. <laughs> so your research into Mary First and her iconography will, of course, take you to paintings and portraits. How important are paintings? To a, to a layman, you would just be looking at a portrait and painting going, OK, that looks nice. But how important are paintings and what can we learn from them? That's a really good question. And I completely understand when people, you know, you go to National Gallery or the National Portrait and you look at these portraits and you're thinking, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. And then you just swiftly walk on. The trick is to stand there and just stare. If you just stare just for five, ten minutes, really go into the detail and you you suddenly understand, well, hang on a minute. This person's, you know, they're dressed like this. Well, what's that representing? How are they posed? And, you know, if you go to country houses, where in the country house are they positioned? You know, there's this famous, um, famous uh, correspondence during Elizabeth's reign when she turns up to this house. And as soon as she walks in the door, there's this portrait of Philip II staring right at her. <laughs> you know, and this is during, during the troubles, so to speak, whereas her portrait was behind the door. So there's this whole power, power struggle, even in portraiture at that stage. And then if we go back, back to Mary's reign, <laughs> there's this lovely um, correspondence in 1556, just when the marriage is, it's, it's a bit rocky, you know, Philip's not coming back to England <laughs> anytime soon. And, um, and I'm just going to quote um, this, uh, this thing that people were talking about. When she, the Queen heard that Philip her husband was not to return she, in a rage she caused the king's picture to be carried out of the privy, privy chamber and she in a wonderful storm could not be quieted now a bit of context here uh, the portrait that they're thinking of was in the privy chamber so it's you know it's your main main office so to speak you know there's there was probably a picture of Philip and of Mary which represents them if they're not there so for Mary to order his portrait to be taken out of the privy chamber. And what's funny about this story is there's two versions of it. She either orders it to be carried out or she kicks it out. <laughs> so that power, the presence of Philip no longer being there, it's showing that, you know, his power is no longer valid in England, at least at that moment. She is the monarch. She's the sovereign. He's just a foreign king. Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but the fact that she's removed that portrait does suggest that she's showing, you know, 
she's now definitely in charge. There's no no messing around anymore. And and, so, yeah, certain, and certainly within that quote, that painting is is probably a metaphor uh, for Philip himself. So you can definitely definitely, definitely. that rage. <laughs> whether whether or not he was told is another matter. <laughs> but yes, no. To answer your question, portraiture is very very important. And you have to remember also, yes, the nobility and the royalty had their portraits and on galleries. But I'm sure, as we'll discuss, the poor had their versions as well through coinage and later on in the century, cheaper prints. And, you know, so the image of the monarch is very telling. And, and you touch upon Mary there. So we've looked at why paintings are important. You touch upon Mary. Now, I think we're guilty within this country of having a differing perception to Mary as to say what you would as an expert. Um, you know, what is this common perception of Mary that's within the public? And how much different was that common perception today to the contemporary perception of, of Mary? That's a really good question. And it's really topical at the minute, especially this year. Um, so yeah, so if we talked about the contemporary views, they, they're evenly split. Obviously the Catholic Europe and Catholics in general, they love it. She, they love her. She's the perfect queen. She's the savior of England. She's going to bring it back to Rome. You know, she can't do anything wrong. She's absolutely wonderful. She's compared to the Virgin. She's compared to the New Eve. She, uh, in some poems, she's compared to the Marigold, which is, again, a quotation to the Virgin. Protestants don't really like her. You know, most famously, John Knox called her Jezebel. <laughs> so there's, you know, there is that, I'd say three quarters are in support of her. There's that small minority, but growing minority, which don't support her. And that's sort of where it stays even during Elizabeth's reign, even through James I, there's that, you know, yeah, half them love her, half them hate her. It's only until about the late 17th century, so we get to James II, and we have the whole conspiracy over him. That's when the term Bloody Mary first appears. And obviously that gains traction, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And by the end of the 17th, 18th century, everyone thinks, oh, she's Bloody Mary, you don't want to. We can't have a Catholic on the throne, because remember what happened to Bloody Mary? during Bloody Mary's times. And then that sort of concept evolves into more of a tragical figure um, in the 19th, 20th centuries. They think, oh, okay, she may not have been that bad compared to everyone else, but she's such a tragic figure because she doesn't have any children. She has a horrible life. And it's only recently, I'd say in the last, well, it started about 15 years ago with Linda Porter's work and some other wonderful historians. Anna Whitlock is another one. And it's only, I'd say, in the last couple of years, it's really starting to get down into the public mind. Obviously, academia, it's, it was long before, about, like I say, 15 years ago, academia was starting to understand and respect Mary in the way that she was as a, you know, she was our first queen regnant in England or crowned queen regnant. And it's only in the last couple of years that the public are starting to understand, but there's a, there's a long way to go. Yeah, definitely. And I can, I can feel that change shifting at the moment, even from TV shows and work that people like yourself have been doing. Uh, Cause I'm not sure about anyone else, but I definitely grew up with, with that perception of that cool, like cruel, harsh uh, Mary that was portrayed by the horrible history. So maybe Terry Deary has a lot yeah. to answer for. No, 
<laughs> you know, I, I was brought up with Bloody Mary. Blood, you know, everyone knows knows about Bloody Mary, and I know lots of people don't like the Tudors, the TV show, but it does do a very good job of showing Mary in a, in a new light, in the, the light that she probably was. You know, yes, all right, she maybe made a few mistakes, but she was a woman of her time, and you know, the rest of her family made the same mistakes. So we can't really judge one for doing something and the others praising it for it. You know, it's judge them all equally. Yeah, and that's and that's a nice way, really nice way of putting it. I like that. Now, Mary comes to the throne in the eyes of some people as as a usurper, in the eyes of other people as the rightful heir to the throne, Henry VIII's rightful heir. But she has a massive task at the beginning of her reign uh, to kind of put across this image of herself. So what was this what was this image that Mary was trying to convey? Yeah, no, that's a you know, I'd say a lot of people didn't really see her as a usurper because everyone knew that she was the daughter of him, you know, she was the eldest daughter. Whether or not the marriage was legitimate, depending which side of the argument you were on. But everyone acknowledged, yes, after Edward, she's the heir. Obviously, you have that issue with Lady Jane Grey and Northumberland, but on the whole, you know, like during that conspiracy, Catholics and Protestants both agreed Mary's got the better claim. She's the true Queen of England. So um, if you'd allow me, I'd like to show you some images, which oh, were <laughs> well, you know, the first couple of images during her reign. And I think they really show the power of imagery as a whole. Perfect. So this is a wonderful portrait. I absolutely love this portrait. This is by Hans Eworth. And it's currently in the Society of Antiquaries. Um, can you see it? You can see it, yep. can't you? All yep, good. Perfect. Yep. So this is in the Society of Antiquaries. Um, so, you know, if you're around that area, you can visit it. It's, I think it's free. It's a wonderful portrait. And it's, we believe it's painted in 1554. Now, as you can clearly see, you know, this is, this is Maria Regina, shall we say. It's not Mary Tudor, Maria Regina. She's in her golden gown. She's in a triangular notion. And this symbolizes her fertility. You have the triangular notion here, the triangular notion here, and it's pointing to her womb. So she's saying, you know, I am, I, I can bear fruit. I can bear a legitimate Catholic heir. Here you have the tall cross. And now this cross was Catherine of Aragon's. So she's symbolizing, you know, her motherhood, also motherhood, but also her lineage. She's, a, you know, she is the daughter of, Catherine of Aragon, the granddaughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Castile. And also it shows her, you know, Catholic religion. Here we have the pillar. Now this pillar is using a lot of Habsburg iconography and a lot of European iconography as a whole. And this links to the Virgin as well. There's a lot of um, paintings by Raphael and a lot of the Renaissance artists, which always depict a pillar during the Annunciation. So in this portrait, not only is Mary announcing that she's queen, but she could be announcing, you know, a new start here, you know, it's time to make a fresh. And if we look at some other portraits on the charters, now on the left is probably one of the first images of Mary that we have. And this is part of a charter, uh, it's in Canterbury Cathedral actually. So if you're a member of the library, you're free to have a look at it yourself. And this is a letters patent to Thomas Hewitt's on the 6th of November, 1553. And again, as you can see, Mary's crowned, you know, she's wearing a lot of ermine, which is symbolizing her, her symbolic role as queen. 
She's holding the scepter and the orb. Above it's Vivat Regina, her initials, MR. And it's really interesting, actually, because even though there's this image of Mary, the actual document has the seal of her brother still, Edward VI. So there's this whole discussion about how important are images? Well, in terms of this document, this has shown that Mary is now the queen and Edward is not, because obviously seals take longer to produce than drawings. And I guess the most famous portrait at the beginning of her reign is this one on the right for the Michaelmas 1553 King's Bench Roll. And this is, we believe, it's made by Levina Turlink, and it was commissioned by Clement Tusser, who was a Falacian clerk of the King's Bench at the time. But this tells us the story of the, that fateful week with Lady Jane Grey and the rebellion. So here we have Mary being told that either Edward, her brother, has passed on, or that she needs to, or that she is now queen. We have the two angels in blue and red which also symbolise the Virgin and the Annunciation, because the Virgin's always depicted in blue and the angel Gabriel was normally depicted in red. So this merging of two colours could symbolise that. Obviously, we can't prove that, but it is quite interesting to note that. On the right here, we have um, what, uh, Northumberland's army and Northumberland giving up. He's surrendering at that famous battle. Well, we weren't. it's not really a battle because there was never no bloodshed but it's Northumberland accepting his defeat and then his army proclaiming Mary as queen and obviously we in the center we have Mary enthroned in her coronation robes she's holding the sword of justice and her scepter the angels either side of her the order of the garter and the holy dove above symbolizing the holy spirit so she's shown as God's anointed queen and I guess this is the symbol that Mary's trying to produce at that time. She's a legitimate monarch, she's a Catholic monarch, and she's also a woman. So she's our first queen. And yeah, you can see you can see that religious imagery flowing right through all of those portraits. And they're really, they're really gorgeous. Partic I particularly like the Michael Mass one. I think that's incredibly interesting. <laughs> it is. You know, when I first saw it, it was because you always see these things on TV and but actually seeing it in the flesh, because it is gold leaf, it's real gold and it's wonderfully illuminated and you know th these are all in the local archives and national archives so if you've got a reader's ticket you'll and as long as you've got the right permissions you're free to see them you know and i'd highly recommend them they're gorgeous gorgeous portraits and you don't and you don't need to be a student or a researching historian to even go and look at those either just need to a... no well as long as you've got your library card and you've got the right credentials you're free to have a look so yeah, that, that's a that's a fantastic idea. I think some people, more people, should go and do that. Really, they should definitely. You yeah. know, it doesn't even need to be Mary. Look at any, you know, these sorts of illuminations in the King's Bench Rolls are from Henry the Sixth, Henry the Sixth onwards. So, so you know, Henry the Sixth to Charles the Second. So, if you're interested in any of those, you know, have a look. And then, so we've seen the imagery where Mary is proclaiming that she is the legitimate queen. She's enforcing the catholic imagery and again like i just said her legitimacy but in the background of all of this and edward had to contend with it himself and it's within his own imagery mary had the specter of her father um henry the eighth how does she represent herself as henry's daughter but how also does she deal with the difficulties and the issues that come with being henry's daughter 
That's a really good question. And I'll show you a couple more images because when you first, when I first thought of this question, I thought mm, she doesn't really talk about her father, as to, especially in terms of portraiture. But then I recalled a couple of portraits and it's really, once we understand them, it's really interesting to understand the language and what she's trying to present. Whether or not she commissioned themselves, we, we just don't know. We think the Eworth one, she probably did, probably did commission. But some of the others, we, you know, like with most things, we just don't know. But it would be nice to think, or oh, maybe she did do it. So if we look at this next one, if we compare the one I spoke about earlier, Hans Eworth's 1554 portrait, and as everyone knows, if you think about Henry VIII, you automatically think of this pose. Um, this portrait is at Petworth House, which you're free to visit. If you compare the two, look at them. Henry is in his stance, his masculine stance, his legs apart, his shoulders wide, staring right at the viewer. Compare that to Mary. She's in that triangular notion. Her skirt opens up as if she's in her legs apart stance. Her shoulders are quite wide. Her gown, her sleeves are quite wide. So it's, again, she's filling the room just like her father. If we look at, in terms of fertility, Henry's wearing his famous codpiece you know, promoting his fertility, saying, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm as fertile as anything. Mary's doing the same with her hand gestures. She's pointing to her womb. She's saying, I am fertile. I will produce an heir. And then there's this other portrait, um, currently in Texas, but it was at Orthorpe House. And we believe it's painted around 1554. It has to be after 1554 for reasons I'll go into later. But if you compare the two portraits, on one on the left, Mary is just with her, her father and the, um, the fool, which is part of the family, Will Summers. He was a, more or less, he was a family member, as, so to speak. But if you compare what Mary and Henry are wearing in the left, they're both wearing the same colours, gold, brownie, tawny colour. They're both staring at the viewer again. You know, we have Will Summers with the Spaniel, so loyalty. So there's that direct link with father and daughter. And even though this image isn't the best, if you look at the hands, Henry is no longer wearing his coronation ring. So he's no longer, it's a sign that he's passed on. Whereas Mary is wearing the coronation ring. So it's proven that she is now queen. She's the legitimate ruler. She's a direct inheritor of her father. And then if we look at to the right, and this portrait is currently at the British Library for the Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots ex expedition. So if you have not gone there, I would highly recommend it, even if it's just for this portrait. It is gorgeous, but it is very small. I was surprised how small it was. But again, we have this similar image of the Tudor dynasty. We have Henry, you know, he's not looking his best now, but he's still here, <laughs> still around. And we've got Edward and then Mary and Elizabeth. We believe this is a copy of a lost original. And we believe it was painted probably, the original at least, probably painted around Edward's reign, which is why Edward's the central figure. Obviously, this one's painted about a century later. But if you compare the two, in this one, Mary is just seen as the sister of the king or the, sister, or the daughter of the king. She's in the same costume as Elizabeth. She's not really meant to be seen at all. Whereas the one on the left, you know, you automatically are directed to both Mary and Henry you know, that gaze, they're both staring right at you. She's trying to prove that she is the legitimate daughter and the next stage, shall we say, of the Tudor dynasty. 
and you can and and you can clearly see that through the paintings as well and definitely for audio listeners they are they are very powerful and they show mary to i i call it a tory power pose when i when i describe them but they are you can see the power that they they radiate through these paintings and and feeling them come alive even through a screen not i can't imagine what they'd be like (laughs) to be with um now we've touched on it ever so slightly um and it probably stems from from Henry. You know, we've seen Henry break from from Rome. We hear we see him show his power, and Edward does the same within his his portraiture. But then Mary has a very different relationship with religion. As you've mentioned, she was a Catholic. She brings the English Church back in with Rome. How is this return to Catholicism demonstrated within her iconography and imagery? So I guess the most famous um, iconog- in terms of iconography in this are the medals that were produced throughout Europe. You know, it's a celebration of, well, it's a celebration of reunion, a return to the flock, so to speak. So if we look at these medals produced by Jacopo de Trezzo, we believe from 1554, we don't know if Trezzo came to England or not. Some scholars say he did and took this portrait of her. Some people say it was a, he was influenced by other portraits. But if we look at this gold medal, and this medal was produced in silver and bronze as well, obviously we have Mary in profile. She's gazing at whoever. We have her title as Queen of England, France and Ireland, Defender of the Faith. But then if we look at the reverse, Mary's portrayed as peace. She has an olive branch. She's burning... Uh, tools of war so she's shown as a peaceful monarch as a catholic monarch we we don't quite know what this box is i think it may be pandora's box or another sort of symbol and she's thrown it into the sea she's removing it she's removing all her types of heresy on her left we see people in agony you know they're they're traumatized by the governments that have come before maybe or the protestant religion and we're not quite sure but then if you look to her right people are calm you know she is the calm of the storm she's returning people back to the true faith and if we actually um look at the inscription it more or less says that she's bringing back light she's bringing light to the timid uh ceases visus timidus means sight to the blind peace to the timid so she is catholic england's protector she's their governess and if we look at this later medal, produced for Pius II, uh, sorry, Julius II, it's a, a Jubilee medal, so to speak. We have here on the reverse, England subjecting herself back to Rome. We have Julius here. We have Cardinal Pole. We believe Charles V, and then Philip and Mary. And England here, it says, England rise as on the last day. So this is there's this whole movement to show England has is sorry for what's happened before and it's time to come back to the fold, come back to the truth, because only the truth can save you from eternal damnation. And that, that, that's incredibly powerful, some of those imagery as well. Definitely. Um, and, you know, th- these medals were produced, everyone, loads, there's hundreds of them all and, over Europe. And even in these last medals, she's not shown as... Um, meek and mild 
damsel in distress. She's shown on par with the other king, major kings and emperors of Europe. Exactly. Is again really quite incredible for one of the first queen regnants of Europe. Yeah, you know, she she's had a good example from her grandmother and her aunts. You know, in terms of Europe, the Spain and Habsburg Empire in general are very used to females being queens in terms of their own right, queen regnants. And you know, even in England, we've had we had obviously Matilda in the early centuries, and then Lady Jane Grey, you want to counter. But Mary's the first one to be crowned and to be a successful queen. I feel yeah, like so someone it, it, doesn't it, quite count Lady Jane Grey, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't. Kind of, but that's that's for another day. You're kind of not touching her thoughts, next... obviously. But... <laughs> well, you're kind of touching on my next question, actually, um, which is, how does Mary try and put a different image across, both at home and abroad? Because obviously, there's a different image of what a woman queen is, like you've just said in Europe. Um, she's got very little examples to draw upon in England and the last queen wasn't particularly successful or present so how does how does Mary deal with these issues and what is she trying to say uh, within her imagery of both home and abroad that's a really interesting question and the answer may surprise you it may not surprise you but you would think oh in terms of Europe they'd be absolutely fine with it you know she's a queen regnant she's Everyone knows what Queen Regna is. She'll be crowned and all sorts of things. But it's quite the opposite. And it's mainly due to her marriage to Philip. So obviously, once she's married to Philip in July 54, in terms of Europe, yes, she's a Queen Regna. She's Queen in her own right in terms of England and the other nations. But she can't overshadow Philip because he is, well, he will be the future king of the Habsburg Empire. So he has to be the priority. So if we look at a couple of windows that are throughout the empire, it's very interesting. And not many people do know about these windows. So if we look onto the left, uh, this window in St. Janskers in Gouda, it was designed about, well, we think 1557. And it's part of this whole imagery. There's, like it says, the King's seventh window. So there are, there's a lot more windows showing the Habsburg dynasty and in all their glory. But if we look at here, here's Mary. She's as a consort here. Philip is in front, which is, you know, it's, it's expected because not only is he a king and a male, but it is his empire, you know, it's his land. So even though Mary was queen of the land as well, she has to be seen as a consort. She can't overshadow Philip. But they wear similar crowns. They wear similar outfits. You know, really the only difference is that she was a, girdle and a skirt and a whereas he's in armor he's shown his warrior past whereas if we look to the right with Cornelius van Dell's window around the same time 56 and you know there was this big building program in terms of stained glass during this time which is really interesting all around similar areas unfortunately there's none in England that I'm aware of so it's really important that these windows have survived and again, we have Mary and Philip. Obviously, I don't quite think these windows are exactly how they're looking in real life, but it's quite a good comparison to see how Philip and Mary, you know, they're both kneeling, they're both united in God. Again, they're wearing similar crowns, different to the other ones, but they're exact, more or less exactly the same. 
and here you know we have the link with the virgin again she is the mother of the future child of england hopefully phillips with his protects her but what is of notice and i'm not sure if it's important or not, but above mary we have a bit of blue sky within this darkness philip has no blue sky so it's showing mary's virtue as a wise ruler as a pure ruler as a female ruler perhaps linking again to the virgin you know she is the savior of england maybe just perhaps the savior of Habsburg europe because in terms of the marriage treaty after philip's son don carlos her children if she had any would inherit the spanish empire so then if we um, look at the most famous portrait of mary i mean everyone knows this portrait it's some you know it's probably the only portrait the general public know about her uh, this portrait by Antonius Moore, painted November 1554. You know, everyone thinks, oh, how doesn't she look cruel? Doesn't she look like a bride? She's no, she doesn't look like a queen at all. Well, this is very in tune with Habsburg iconography as a, to as a whole. Yes, she's not wearing a crown. She's not wearing probably any signs to show that she's a queen in her own right. It's only if you look closer. So if we look to her hands, here we have her coronation ring, which is the diamond, and then her wedding ring. Now, if we think about the belief at the time when they believed the wedding ring or the finger, wedding finger, shall we say, leads directly to the heart, the fact that you've got the coronation ring before the wedding ring means that her kingdom comes before her marriage and they're intertwined. And it's quite unusual because a lot of copies of this portrait do not have the wedding ring. They've only got the coronation ring. And I'll probably go into that in a bit later. And as we've discussed before, everyone thinks Mary's the cruel monarch, the harsh monarch, the heartless monarch. Well, actually, she's the only Tudor to smile in her portraits. Now, that's something to think about. That, yeah, that's a, that's a massive point, really, isn't it? Especially yeah. considering the view that we have that at the beginning of his reign, Henry was this happy, jolly monarch. So it's very interesting that. Exactly. So, yeah. So just to clarify, uh, these two contemporary copies, uh, one in the Marquess of Northampton's collection and one at the Isabel and Stuart Garden Museum. Um, the Isabel and Stuart Garden Museum, we do believe it may actually have been Mary's own copy um, because she gave it to a loyal supporter in around 1557. The Marcus of Northampton's collection, we're not quite sure yet who originally owned it. Originally, I thought it was the Marquess of Northampton, but I've just read an article this week suggesting otherwise. So I will keep you updated with who we think originally owned this. But again, you know, you can see it's the same pattern. So we believe it's by Moore or one of his workshops. But if we look at the hands, as I've said earlier, there's no wedding ring, only in her coronation ring. Now, that's important. Why isn't the wedding ring presented here if these are painted after the initial portrait? I will leave that question to you. Well, we'll leave the viewers to, to exactly. also I'd, comment I'd love as well. To know I'd, your, like your, to... I'd love to know your opinions. <laughs> Why? What? What's going on here? Yeah, maybe you can get involved with some research with Peter, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah please do. You know, I'd love to know other different opinions. I have my own theories, but it's always nice to know what everyone else thinks. And then, of course, 
we've just had Mary and you've touched on Philip, who might form part of my theory on that uh, on that ring conundrum. Obviously, they're married and their iconography and the way that represents in portraiture is or becomes entwined. Um, but how does the way that both of them are represented, both at home in, in England and abroad or at home in Spain, does that change? Or are they started to rep to be represented in certain ways? So I guess the most common form that they're represented is in coinage. And I'll probably link to Isabella and Ferdinand with this as well, because it is very important. So if we look at this Courtney, when it shows up. On the left, we have a um, Excelente, which is a gold coin, depicting Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand on the left, Isabella on the right. Now, if anyone knows their Spanish history, we all know who wore the trousers in that relationship. It was Isabella. Now, if we compare to this silver shilling produced after 1554, we have Mary in the same position as Isabella. Ferdinand and Philip share the same position. We have a joint crown above them. Now, this is slightly different between their grandparents and great-grandparents, because obviously Isabel and Fernand both share, wear individual crowns, whereas here they share the joint crown. But if you look closely, Mary is not only looking above Philip, but she's slightly higher. So there is that struggle between dominance, you know, who is more powerful, who's more insignificant in this marriage. Well, in terms of English coinage, it has to be Mary because she is the Queen Regnant. Philip is just king. He is king by name, not really by power. And then obviously on the reverse, we have the joint coat of arms symbolising both their marriage and their union. And then if we look at the only known marriage portrait to have survived, we're not quite sure who it's after. Some people think it's Hans Eworth. I'd like to think it's by Hans Eworth, but there is still a lot of work to be done with this. Again, Mary is on the dominant side, the left. Philip on the, sorry, Mary on the right, Philip on the left. Mary is the only one sitting down. Philip is in this very awkward position. And there are a couple of theories as to why this is. Perhaps it was how the portrait was originally hung. So he doesn't really look this bad in if the portrait was hung properly. But it could also suggest that originally the underdrawing suggests that he may originally have been sitting down. But the artist has changed that because you can't have both sitting down because it could symbolise Philip taking precedence. Whereas if only Mary is sitting down as the monarch, she's not going to stand up for anyone. Philip as the consul, he has to stand for his queen. And again, at the bottom, we have um, two Spaniels which show loyalty. So they're loyal to the queen. You know, they are loyal. They show their union. They're happily married. So, yeah. Um, and then if we look at some other English documents, again, we're going back to the king's bench rolls. This power struggle, so to speak. Um, their first illuminated document together after the marriage is the Michaelmas 1554 role. Mary is in the dominant position. She's in the left side, Philip on the right. Mary wears uh, parliamentary robes, so she's saying she's a parliamentary monarch. 
Philip is in gold, which just symbolizes wealth. Mary wears more ermine than Philip. Again, she's more powerful. She's more important. They're both individually crowned. And Mary holds the scepter and orb. Philip just holds a sword. Now, some people have suggested that the sword means Philip's in charge because he's a male. He's going to go to war. He's the king. And that's a very good point. You know, he, as the king, as the male, he's going to go to war. Mary's not expected to go to war. But the sword only shows military symbolism. He's only, you know, he's a king. He's a justice maker. Mary's holding the scepter, royal authority. She's the one really in charge. And then this topic, you know, it continues. Mary continues to hold the scepter, fit it with the sword, even when the joint crown becomes a thing. The crown's normally, in most of these documents, always closer to Mary. And Philip always seems to be looking at Mary, and Mary not always looking at him. Even if we look at this Hillary role, she's not quite looking at her husband. And again, she's wearing more ermine. This does change later on, after uh, Philip becomes king of Spain in his own right, after his father's abdication, whereas they swap positions. But again, Philip's only holding the sword, Mary's holding the scepter. The crown does seem to be more aligned in the middle during this period. Obviously, each role is different, so I don't have time to go into it, but there's a lot of differences and different viewpoints on this during this period. And then again, here's a lovely one for the Easter term, which a lot of people sometimes use to show that Philip's in charge, but really, he's not really, because Mary's still holding the scepter. There's no link to say that Philip's the king. And at this point, he wasn't even in England. So it's kind so, of yeah, hard to, to, to yeah, it's kind of hard to suggest that someone's in charge when they're they're not even present at that point. Exactly. You know, there are arguments to say that these were made to try to bring Philip back. But the very nature of these roles is that he wouldn't have even seen them. I mean, yeah. most likely he would not have seen them. So why make the efforts? And even during this period, and I haven't got time to show you today, but there's lots of roles which have the, the roles back to how it was with Mary on the dominant side and Mary bigger. And, you know, and there's some with just Philip on sometimes, some with just Mary on. So there's this whole struggle on our different artists or different commissioners decided well how do we decorate these who do we present it must be a very difficult struggle considering i don't think anyone from the royal family had married someone of as high a status for for such a long time possibly oh, ever yeah so i mean this is the only time we've ever had a well before william and mary later on in the next century this is the first time we have a dual monarchy as such you know and there's this wonderful um, historian, Gonzalo, um, who's just, you know, he's wonderful work. And this concept of Philip being a king's consort is sort of outdated. You know, we can't really describe it because he is a king. He is a king and does have authority, but she's also a queen and a king. So there is there, but we have two monarchs at the same time. Whether or not one had more power than the other, we, we, you know, in terms of, documents it's they both have exactly the same power whether that's a good or a bad thing it's up to debate but there's you know it's the only time we've ever, ever had this because even with William and Mary in the next century William was the dominant one this is the only time we've had two monarchs who are actually monarchs it's an incredibly fascinating area 
of history as well. And as a political historian, I find it incredibly fascinating, these different diplomatic ties and international relations, even for a period where that's not really applicable to the term. But <laughs> Philip is an interesting character. Um, he's prevalent in English politics and English royal politics for a, a, a fairly decent chunk of time in this, uh, in this period. But individually, how does the representation of Philip change individually after his marriage to Mary? To give a short answer, not really. He doesn't change a lot at all. I mean, obviously, when he marries Mary, just before the wedding day, he's still just a prince of Spain. He hasn't got his own kingdom, so Mary outranks him. It's only during, and they realise this, and they think, well, we can't really have this. So his father gives him a couple, you know, the Duchy of um, Sicily, I think, and Naples. So he is then the king of Naples. So, you know, as a king, he can then marry a queen, and they're both of equal standing, even though the king of Naples isn't really as powerful as the queen of England. You know, there is that difference. And then it's only until 1556 when Philip becomes king of Spain after Charles V's abdication, when they're both well, hang on a minute. Now Philip's got more power because obviously he's the king of an empire and his brother's the king of the, he's the Holy Roman Emperor. But there is a, um, some correspondence in 1556, which is quite interesting actually, because it claims that Mary can now star herself as the queen of many great kingdoms as much as her own crown of England. Now, lots of people have just suggested, oh, that's just showing that she's now a queen consort of these kingdoms. But the way the ambassador writes it infers that she's more than just a consort because obviously she's a queen regnant in England. But if she's the queen regnant in the same way, well, as the quote says, as powerful as in her own kingdom, then surely that's suggesting that she's more than a consort. She is queen in her own right as well. You know, not only through her marriage, but through her blood because she is the granddaughter of Isabella. So there is that push to show this is a new Ferdinand and Isabella. There is this working relationship of a union that is akin to their great-grandparents. And it's a, a legendary combination, Isabella exactly, you know, and Ferdinand. It's famous throughout Europe, and you know, we still remember it today. You know, even Henry VIII was scared of Isabella. <laughs> and, that, and that takes a lot of work to, to scare Henry VIII. So it really, it really is fascinating. I've never imagined mary to be that powerful individual that you yeah, are lot, that you're telling us she is a lot of people a lot of people forget that and you know if we even think back the only monarch to really have more power and more land in theory was victoria and the early norman kings you know mary's the first you know she's not just queen of england she's queen of naples she's queen of sicily of spain obviously Habsburg, netherlands uh, Jerusalem, Aus there's bits of Austria, there's Tyrol, you know, the, the list goes on. It's, it's a truly you know, massive kingdom or uh, empire. Exactly. And, you know, if she did have a child, that child would have inherited Flanders, if not Spain. So, you know, that is quite important. You know, if she had more than one, a child, maybe even more than one child, think how powerful that child could have been. Could have been the beginning of a new Catholic age for Europe. Well, which exactly. Is, you um, know, a new empire as such. So it shows just how important 
Mary was to to uh, English history or possibly to European history. Now you mention a child, Peter. Mention a child, um, and it does allude to my next question. You're doing really well at this. In the later stages of 1554, Mary believes, or you believe, that Mary was pregnant at this time. Um, what led you to make this judgment, and 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 how? How do you think this is represented? So, I think everyone accepts she was pregnant in the first time, 1554, because all of the ambassadors say she's pregnant. They say, oh, she's great with child. The pregnancy is going to be, put a stop to all this difficulty. Uh, another, uh, The Spanish ambassador writes to Charles saying, there's no doubt that she's with child. The child moves and she's bigger and she's, you know, she's producing all the symptoms of pregnancy. And in the Antonius Moore portrait, she wears a very loose gown. And we believe she was pregnant at that point. Now, there is, obviously, people think it's just a phantom pregnancy. But there is a report later on, and I need to verify it. But someone discusses how the Queen gave birth to a lump. Now, a lot of people think, oh, it's just rumour. You know, we don't need to think about it, really. But all rumours start with a bit of truth. So someone obviously discussed this. And I really I thought, oh, it's just a lump. You know, it's just whatever. It's just made it up. But it's only once I started reading the work of Karen Hearn. And she talks about how miscarriages used to, they used to call them lumps. Because that's, you know, that's just the terminology at the time. So then thinking back to that reference, she get, the Queen gave birth to a lump. Well, it may be derogatory, it may just be rumour, but if it is true, then she had a miscarriage. The later pregnancy, 57, probably was either a phantom pregnancy or the cancer that, that finally killed her off. But she was I think she was definitely pregnant the first time. Obviously, we can never prove it, but it would be nice to think, you know, she wasn't just mad. She wasn't just imagining this. this. Yes, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened, but she wasn't the crazy queen that people see in, show, you know, in TV shows and dramas, you know, with her being hysterical. You know, she, she's not the Kathy, the Mary that Kathy Burke represents in Elizabeth film. Yeah, you know, she's not, she's, she's not crazy. She's not nuts. You know, people generally believe she was pregnant at that time. And that's, that's a, that's a really big, big claim there. Um, mm. And if that did happen, there are, you know, like you've just said, there is explanations for certain traits and certain events, and it could possibly change our perception of Mary, like you are, like you're, you're setting out to do. And I think you're doing a good job as well. I am reading some of your tweets, so don't worry about Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, imagery-wise, going back to the imagery-wise, moving away from our pregnancy. Um, Mary and Philip, you've mentioned before, they have a rocky relationship. Uh, it ebbs and flows. How does the imagery between or representing Mary and Philip change and evolve as the nature of their relationship changes and evolves? That's a really good question. Um, you know, like I've shown in the other in the other images. A lot doesn't really change. Obviously, you have the early images, which just show Mary, 
and then as soon as she's married, she's still the dominant partner. And then 1556, the roles seem to reverse, but that's not truly what happened. There's lots of ifs and buts, and a lot of different images show different things. So I guess the best way to show is probably through coinage and through the seals. And again, you know, some of these images, a lot of people don't really know about. And it is really interesting to then look at this chronology, see what's happening. Whether or not it was done on purpose is another question. So if we first look, 1553, she's just inherited the throne. Um, these are two wonderful images, actually. So we have a gold sovereign, uh, which is one of the most expensive uh, denominations there is. And you have Mary, you know, she's enthroned, she's wearing her coronation gown, she's wearing her auburn scepter. You have two pillars either side of her, which is showing truth and stability. Um, we get, it gets her title. Her lineage is then represented with fleur de lis and the English coat of arms. And then for the more common coinage, the silver groat, again, 53 to 54. And we know this was produced then because there's no mention of Philip at all. It's just got Mary. So Mary, by the grace of God, Queen of England, France and Ireland, defender of the faith. And on the obverse, we have a motto, Veritas Temporis Filia, truth is the daughter of time. But again, you can see Mary's you know, she's in profile picture. She has her crown. She's wearing loose hair, showing her virginity. She's wearing pearls and she's wearing this crucifix or cross. It may be the same cross depicted in the Hans Eva portrait. We, we just don't know. She's wearing a open gown, as you can see. So again, it's showing her virginity. She's not married yet. If we then look at some other coins, this golden rile, she's sitting in a boat. Her initials, M, is there. Again, she's crowned, holding the sword of justice. She's holding her shield. She's shown that she's a warrior queen, and she's the captain of the ship. She's shown stability. Again, this silver penny, it's shown her in profile. She's wearing the crown, loose hair. Quite a different dress. We're not quite sure what this dress is because of the damage. I need to have a look at it properly to see if we can try to work it out but it does show there's lots of different designs. Uh, the silver shilling, another, again, another design based on the others. The closed imperial crown, loose hair, pearls, necklace, open gown, Maria Regina with different crowns and the harp. Again, it's the same, Veritas Temporis Filia, truth is the daughter of time. And then we get to the marriage and there's these two coins, obviously the silver shilling, which we've discussed before, you know, there's hundreds of them. There's different versions of them, some with Mary higher, some with them at equal length. It's very difficult to sometimes judge these things. But there's this copper penny in Amsterdam, which is a symbol of, you know, it's the Habsburg depiction, shall we say. And you can clearly see Philip's larger. You know, there's no doubt about that. He's larger, he's taller, the open coronet, which is different from the closed crown, we can see. So this is, we definitely know this is from the Habsburg Empire because they didn't have the imperial crown, they had their own coronets. But it's the same design, but Mary is smaller, which is, you know, that makes sense because she's seen as a queen consort in Philip's lands. Philip can't, she can't overshadow Philip. And she's not named either on the coin. Again, we have the joint coat of arms, 
but it only shows the fleur-de-lis. It doesn't show the English lines, which is very interesting. So yeah, it's, you know, on the whole, and not, not a lot changes, a couple of coins change design, but it is quite noticeable that even with the lower denominations, or even after the marriage, it only shows Mary. Philip's, no, Philip's not depicted. His name may be on the coin, but he, his profile isn't. And so it, there is that. And it's, it's fantastic to see that idea that she's maintaining that sovereignty, maintaining that authority right through that marriage. Even after his departure, she's still staying true to her marriage, possibly angry. As we spoke about earlier, that quote. Perhaps, just, perhaps. Yeah. You know, ebbs and flows, I think. Yeah, ebbs and, ebbs and flows is the best way to, from what I've seen, you're probably the expert. Ebbs and flows is probably the most accurate depiction of that, um, of that relationship. So these coins that you've just pointed out are the, the depictions that, oh, first of all, sorry, the children that I teach will kick, will kick me probably if I don't ask. What are the value of those currency? That's all they ever want to know when I speak to oh, them. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's see now. That's I'm going to give a really cop answer, and the value is the value that they show because it's very difficult to say how much they actually were. But if you go on the national, I think it's the National Archive website, they have a currency converter. So I will do the maths for you, and I will send you your my response. So then you can tell the kids. Because that's all, that? that's all I ever get asked. That's all I ever I'll get just asked say, when I mention money. I'll say money. It, it, it's a lot. It's, you know, a gro a gro I could tell you how much a groat is. A groat is about four pence. Now, that may, not, that may not think a lot. That may not sound like a lot. But back then, it's, it's, quite, you know, it's a lot more than what it is now. Hey, well, thank you. I'll, 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 I'll get back to you on that because I don't quite know because these are different. Obviously, we know what pound shillings and pence are. These are different because they have different values and depending on who you ask they're worth different things but i will get back to you on that awesome they'll love that they'll absolutely love that. that's all i ever seem to be asked when i ask about money so <laughs> thank you very much a very good question no it's <laughs> very important that we understand how much these things actually were so obviously these coins are being held by the by the peasantry or the people ordinary people don't have any titles lower down these systems and it means a lot to them to see mary but then the aristocracy they have the portraits of mary you know the the peasantry or the ordinary people have these coins for one dip one reason just to pay and buy uh and they can look at mary and philip as they as they kind of pull these coins out but why did the aristocracy have portraits of mary you know what was what was important about them owning these portraits and displaying these portraits and like you said where they put them yeah no that's a very good question um i mean the cheap answer is the um aristocracy can afford to they can afford these luxury items these paintings these these miniatures you know they can be gifts for people um but yeah no the reason they've got an image of mary and we don't actually know how many are contemporary or later editions thanks to long galleries and you know, the, the interest in portrait sets where they have a set of monarchs all in one go. Um, but yeah, no, it's mostly to show loyalty, to show heritage, to show lineage, to show, you know, this is my history. You know, these families can trace their origins back to the Norman conquest. 
So they have, you know, they like to show different portraits of images of kings and queens. You know, it's not just Mary. You've got her father, her grandfather, great-grandfather. You know, they're all there. And, you know, the power of these images, you know, going to like Anne Boleyn's, so to speak, we have no contemporary images of her because they were all burned, they were removed because we, Henry didn't want any acknowledgement that she survived, she existed. You know, again with Mary, we don't know how many are contemporary, how many are later editions, but it's just, you know, it's to show, well, this is the Tudor lineage. This is the Tudor, this is the house of Tudor. We have Henry VIII, Henry VII, Mary, Edward, Elizabeth, and then you later go on to the Stuarts. You know, they carry on this whole lineage through the long galleries and other private commissions. You know, even to today, we still have, you know, aristocrats buy portraits that, you know, it's why they have all their ancestors painted so they can show this lineage, this history, this, you know, linking back to the past. And in terms of coinage, well, you know, actually I'll show you this coin because it's, this could show some interaction with the original owner so if we look here, this silver penny, there's this hole and it's been deliberately made. It's not by accident, it is man-made. So this penny may have been a medallion at some point or some lucky token. Why the owner made it, we don't know. Was the owner given it by someone? Was it a good luck charm? You know, there's all these questions we have to ask ourselves. How many people held these coins? Did people look at the images? Were they important? Obviously, for this person, this coin must have been important because the hole isn't even, it's not defacing Mary, it's on the side. So it's not a sign of rebellion against her. You know, it's showing loyalty, perhaps, or some sort of sympathy. And linking to that, there's a lovely um, reference in the state papers, which you're all free to see as well. Um, when they talk about rebellions and how they re rebel against Mary. And there's one, um, what's the word? There's a reference when they say the reason that we know when there was this rebellion in the, in the later period, the reason that we know these people were involved with each other is because they, they had cut a coin and the instigators and the leaders of the rebellion each gave a piece of coin to their soldiers and to their friends and that so we know coinage does have a part to play in all this you know it's a lot more important than we realize that's that's because i've never thought of currency and coinage in that way um so only recently where we began to talk about whose faces should we have on the new 10 20 and 50 pound mm. notes where i've started to realize the importance and the power Exactly, you know, a lot of people don't really look into it, but they do mean something, you know, and, may, and we are probably starting to understand that more often now, you know, we're going back to how it used to be. And possibly naivety has led to us believe, well, mm. they just stamp the face on and that's how it's always been. So that's exactly. why we do it. You know, you have to, you know, it's why we've, it's still, I think, still a criminal offence to deface pound notes and pound coins because you're defacing the monarchy, you can't deface the monarchy. You know, it's a criminal offence. Now, we've touched on almost every part of uh, Mary's iconography. We've looked at before her reign. We've looked at during her reign, during her marriage to Philip, after her and Philip have kind of flowed 
in their relationship. It's not been the greatest of points. His absence, uh, we've looked at her imagery with the peasantry and the ordinary people and the aristocracy, but there is one part which I'm quite interested in, uh, and it is her relationship with France. Now, obviously, this claim comes from Henry V. Um, probably birthright, she has no claim to this claim to the French throne at all. But nevertheless, as English monarchs have done for centuries, she still maintains a claim to the French throne. So how is this claim to the French throne represented uh, for Mary? Because it's a very peculiar uh, claim. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, even she didn't really have any ambition. She didn't have an ambition to become Queen of France. You know, it's just it wasn't going to happen. It's just a hereditary title. And I think we only just lost it a couple maybe a couple of centuries ago so you know they kept going on with this you know historic claim to france even after um, the french got rid of their own monarchy well so. exactly exactly so technically we can take it back maybe. <laughs> but um, yeah no it's the only claim the only way it actually really shows is probably the fleur de lis but that could link to france but it also linked to the virgin as well so there's she doesn't really push for this uh, understandably yeah, yeah. There's, there's no conspiracy really um you know maybe if she'd won the war in 57 58 we could be having a different conversation but you know because yeah. she, she she was that she was close well philip was very close to taking france <laughs> and know, um, if he if he just pushed pushed on he could have he could have done it could is always could. the the favorite word of historians so uh peter here's your final fun question as we always do here on the history of jackson podcast what is your favorite portrait of mary the first that's a really really good question and, and i've, I've got opinion to one <laughs> i've been thinking about it for ages and ages so in terms of porch well i'm going to give you a long-winded answer for this so in terms of portraiture I used to hate Antonio Small's famous portrait. After actually looking into it and you know zooming in onto the portrait, I have a lot more respect for it and I do enjoy it. I also like Hans Ewer's portrait, which was the first image. But I guess the most, the image which I love the best is actually something that was, it may not have been made at all because she died, too, she died prematurely, but it's the seal design for the fifth for 1558 now i think we briefly discussed it but i'll quickly go over it um so we have three different seals designs for mary we have this early one which i show now 1553 obviously she's not she's not married yet mary's enthroned we have the coat of arms her tudor house she's crowned she's looks very much like the mukamash roll with her coronation gown she's riding a horse showing stability there's your link with France, with the fleur de lis. Um, this other seal, which is the Court of Exchequer, again, she's crowned, she's enthroned, she's got two pillars either side of her, she's got the pomegranate showing her Spanish side, the Tudor rose showing her father's lineage. This joint seal, I know it's in, sorry it's in a bad condition, but it's the best one I've found so far. We have the both monarchs, they're both holding the orb, Philip his sword, Mary her scepter, here we have them both on horses, even though Philip's in front, well, the dominant image, Mary's horse is in front, and 
I know you can't really tell with this image, but trust me on this. Philip's horse is bowing to Mary's horse or to Mary in general. So it's shown that he is submissive to his wife. So this was done about 1555, 1556, a whole nearly two years after their marriage, which is another question that we can go into at another time because that's really, really important. So coming on to my favourite image of Mary is a steel design. We date, it's dated about 1558, which is very significant. You know, we'd think, oh, the joint steel, it's shown the marriage, that would be the last one. According to this image, no, there was a move to show Mary on her own again. You know, this is beautiful. It's shown her in imperial majesty. She's an empress with all those lands that she inherited as a wife of Philip. She's incarnated, she's crowned, she's wearing her Spanish lineage, you know, the cross shown Catherine of Aragon, her marriage pendant and jewel by Philip and Charles, her scepter, her orb. She's got pillars either side of her. She's the truth. She's England's Judith. She's their savior. We have two sphinxes either side of her showing loyalty and trust and true, you know, true lineage. This is a Renaissance image. You know, if this image had been used, this is showing not Mary Tudor. Again, it's Maria Regina. She is Queen of England, Spain, France, Lord of, Lordess of Ireland. You know, she's Sicily, Toulouse, Jerusalem, Naples. This is Mary in all her imperial glory. And why was it produced in 1558? You know, was this a sign to show to Philip, you're no longer, you know, we can't keep playing around about the matter. I'm queen, you're just my husband. Unfortunately, we this seal was never, as far as I'm aware, never produced because she died in November, 17th of November, 1558. So Jackson, that is my favorite image of Mary. I'm lost for words of that. That was that's an absolutely beautiful depiction of Mary. Um, I think a lot of people don't know about it. And, you know, I found it by accident, and the it's at the British Museum. I don't know if it's on display or not. I don't think so. But originally they thought it was Elizabeth because that's you know you'd think oh yeah that you know look at it it looks just like you know it's Elizabeth Elizabethan iconography. It's only when you start looking oh wow actually it's not because the jewels they're Mary's jewels. Yeah, you know, this this is Elizabeth has copied from Mary, and there's a couple of images where you can clearly see oh Elizabeth's just moved on, she's carried on from her sister, and no one thinks about that image when they think of Mary. We always think about Antonius Moore or some other derogatory picture. No, this is the Mary we need to think about. This is what she had planned, or someone in her government had planned to use. Unfortunately, it was never made into a seal or to whatever it was meant to be. But it's an absolutely stunning depiction. And I think that should be more prevalent in our our minds when we think Definitely. of Mary. Well, maybe in the future book, it'll be the front cover, hopefully. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that book. Um, but firstly, before your book, which books do you recommend to our readers? So they can, or not readers, we're on a podcast, to podcast our watchers readers. and listeners. <laughs> I uh, think they're well, probably audio books by now anyway. So. Yeah, it's all one. That's all one. <laughs> So what books do you recommend people go away and read if they want to learn more about Mary? So there are loads of wonderful publications about Mary that have just been off the press. And um, there's this 
a new volume coming out later in the year by Val Valerie Chute. It's a two volume, all talking all about Mary and her bits of our iconography, her letters, her writing. And that's, I think it's later in this year. Loads of authors have contributed to it. So I would highly recommend that when that comes onto the presses. But if you're a bit bored and you want to know a bit more about art and Antonius Moore and his famous Moore portrait, I'd recommend Antonius Moore, Art and Authority, you know, by Joanna Woodall. It is a lengthy book and it is very art, art historian-y like, but it's really, really interesting. And if you want an appreciation of Neverlandish art, I'd highly recommend that. Um, if you're more just for a normal Tudor iconography, I'd recommend Kevin Sharp's Selling of the Tudor Monarchy. It's, you know, you can clearly, it's a very well-researched book. It's absolutely fantastic. And I guess other books, you know, you can just go online, go on um, state papers online, and you can see the actual documents for yourself on your computer screen. There are uh, later transcriptions to help you if you can't read the writing, which I still can't, so don't worry about that. You know, they are very, very good, very messy handwriting, but it's it's all done for a reason. Um, so, yeah, no, go on state papers online, some of the other books I've looked at. Um, Franny Moyles, The King's Painter, talks about all about Holbein. And it's, again, it's just off the press. It's fantastic. I'd highly recommend it. And if you want to look at portraits in general, just go to the British Library, because they've got their Mary and Elizabeth exhibition on at the minute. And just look at other catalogues because there are so many portraits no one's talked about in so long. And yeah, they're my book, my book recommendations. Awesome. And they, they all look absolutely fantastic. And I've seen quite a few of them prop up with good reviews on uh, online as well. So Peter's recommended some fantastic books there. Now, finally, Peter, where can people find you and your research online? Yep. So the best place is probably Twitter. I'm quite famous on there at the minute, I think, <laughs> after <laughs> a couple of tweets. But yeah, no, uh, go on tweet Twitter. I think it's PeaceStefell97 or something like that. I don't actually know. But I'm sure you'll be able to find it if you go on Jackson's links and follow through Jackson. But yeah, follow me on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place. Awesome. And all those links will be in the description below. So thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And no I look Thank forward you. to seeing everyone again. If you enjoy this podcast and you enjoy listening to Peter, please make sure to leave a like, review and subscribe and go and find Peter online because Peter's research needs to be out there a bit more. Okay, guys. So thank you very much for listening. and I'll talk to you all later. Mm -hmm.